Hello, I'm Becky Hadid, host of The Storied Recipe. As my weekly guests share their stories through the vessel of cherished food memories, we all become better cooks, more grateful for the gift of food, and we honor those that have loved us through their cooking. Today's guest's name is Nermeen, but by the time you finish this episode, you may just think of her as Wonder Woman. At the age of 22, Nermeen, who was born, raised, and educated first in Alexandria, Egypt, then in Cairo, achieved the rare honor of being appointed a female Egyptian diplomat. Ten years into her service, she fell in love with an American diplomat. When she chose to marry him, she also chose to give up her post, but not her position in the diplomatic corps. Rather, Nermeen now travels the world with her husband and two daughters, perfecting and practicing the art of forging bonds, in large part through culinary diplomacy. She's sharing with us her recipe for pecan date molasses bars, which she created to, quote, declare a state of harmony and self-reconciliation that she reached as an immigrant and citizen of the world. Also, Friday, Nermeen will share with us how she leveraged her Arabic, knowledge of Middle Eastern culture, diplomatic skills, and empathy as a woman to embark on an incredible project of empowerment for Syrian refugee women. This project brought Nermeen a profound appreciation for the power of food stories and reconnected her personally to her own Egyptian roots. You will absolutely want to hear this. So if you haven't subscribed yet, take a second right now to do so. Thank you. And here's my personal heroine, Nermeen. How are you? Thank you so much for your flexibility. It's totally fine. I thank you for making the time. Reading through your bio, I just didn't even know where to start. So there's a lot I want to dig into, but can you just give us like a bird's eye view of your life and then we'll start to dig in. Does that sound good? And as you said, because I have uh, an unusual life, I was trying to boil it down to (laughs) my ideas a little bit. So I'll go through this. Uh, So in a nutshell, um, I was born and raised in Egypt Mm -hmm. in a Coptic Christian family. And uh, I was fortunate enough to live uh, in both Cairo and Alexandria. In college, I majored in uh, political sciences and uh, minored in economics. I joined the Egyptian Foreign Service almost exactly one year after my graduation at the age of uh, 20, almost 23. I was an Egyptian diplomat for nearly a decade. I served in Guatemala in Central America and I assumed uh, several roles in the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. In uh, 2008, I met a handsome American diplomat (laughs) in a conference uh, with whom I, I uh, fell in love. And uh, six months later, I resigned and we got married. Wow. And I moved to his, uh, he was serving back then in Algiers, in North Africa. Okay. So uh, we spent eight months there. Mm-hmm. Um, so do you want me to go on? Well, I, I have there? lots of follow-up questions already. You grew up sure. in Egypt and you lived in Cairo and Alexandria, yes. you said? Okay. I'm curious if there are, so like in the U.S., right? I mean, there's major regional differences. The West Coast, the East Coast, the South. Are there definable differences between the cultures in Cairo and Alexandria? Okay. Um, Alexandria, because it's a Mediterranean city, uh, it's more cosmopolitan. 
there are traces of uh, Greek, Italian, Armenian, and Lebanese um, yeah. uh, culture. Cairo's mm. uh, much bigger city, of course. Okay, okay, that's on, and you said you were raised as a Coptic Christian. Exactly. And did so, that make you a minority there? Exactly. So Christians uh, are ten percent of the total population in Egypt. And Coptic Christians, uh, the Coptic Church is the second oldest church after Jerusalem. Uh, it was founded by St. Mark. Okay. And he's, he was a missionary in Alexandria. And the Coptic Church is an Orthodox Church. It means it's a bit on the conservative side. Okay. Okay. And um, what did your parents do? Did, was, that, was, was it for jobs that you traveled from Cairo to Alexandria? So uh, my father, um, he was self-employed. He has his own business in Alexandria, and this is where I grew up. I okay. went to a Catholic French school, and I moved to Cairo uh, to study political sciences. Back then, it was the only political sciences, uh, political science uh, college in, okay. in, in Egypt. So first of all, since this is a podcast that's loosely related on food. We talked about the difference in cultures between Cairo and Alexandria, that Cairo was much bigger, but Alexandria was more cosmopolitan. Would exactly. you say that the types of food you ate were different in each places? Was Alexandrian food heavily influenced by all of the foreign citizens there? Exactly. Uh, being raised in Alexandria, I was exposed to uh, a vibrant array of uh, cuisines. Mm. And my mom, the grand, great-grandmother of my mom is Greek. Oh, so okay. uh, we also ate a lot of Greek food at home. Oh. And as I mentioned, I went to a French Catholic school and I mingled with all those uh, expats. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think the seeds of my food passion started there. And this mm -hmm. is something I always highlight in my posts. Um, it always go back to my kitchen's grandma in Alexandria mm -hmm. and the flavors, um, the flavors that I was exposed to. Which were Greek flavors. It was Greek Egyptian, Greek with an Egyptian twist. And, um, <laughs> and the, the, the bakeries in Alexandria, they had a heavy influence from Italians they actually very good. Mm. Like I would compare them to some bakeries in Paris and I lived in Paris for three years. Wow. You said they were mostly run by Italians. Um, you know, the Italian Greek, I mean, the, all the expats influence started to dwindle down. Uh, they were forced out of Egypt uh, in, the, in, in probably mid fifties. Oh. And some of them stayed and maintain their business, and then some of them gradually left. And they sold their business to people who used to work from them. And those workers kept the, the secrets. I see. The cooking okay. and baking secrets. So the influence is so obvious, you can't miss it. Oh, okay. So if you go to a regular um, uh, good bakery in Alexandria, you will find Baba, which is also called Savaran. Uh, or Black Forest, Foreign Noir. Interesting. So the influence is still there. Mm -hmm. And what happened in the 50s? So there was a revolution. Egypt okay. was a royal regime. Mm -hmm. And then there was a revolution uh, by, like a coup d'etat by the military. And the political regime has changed from a royal one to a republican one. Okay. 
And um, they, I think they wanted to, the regime back then, the Republican one, wanted to uh, derive some um, uh, resources. So they had to confiscate the properties of a foreign, uh, foreign and local uh, mm. businessmen. Hmm. So many families feared their life, uh, lives and properties, and uh, they basically fled. And those who had business or, you know, or didn't have business or, you know, there was like middle or lower middle class just stayed. Okay. So then you went to Cairo to go to college. Exactly. And that's where you got your political science degree. And I have to wonder the difference in the classes taught in American political science classes and Egyptian political science classes? I had a very uh, enriching experience studying political science. I was taught by uh, public figures Mm. and our classroom was fairly small compared to other colleges. We were really encouraged to have an analytical mind. Mm -hmm. And um, as I said, I was taught by public figures. Yeah. So we expressed ideas freely uh, there was an active civil movement mm. um, in, in Egypt back then. So I think, you know, when I write about food, I write from a socio-economic and also political perspective. Mm. I use food to analyze uh, social and economic tendencies. Mm. And this, I think this goes back to my education, to my studies. Mm. Did you do that explicitly in those classes or it's just the ways that you learn to think? This is how I learned to think. Yeah. When you look at the pantry or the Mm. signature recipes of a certain family, Mm. without knowing this family, you can easily get an idea of its socioeconomic standard, of its cultural background, of its exposure to other cultures, right? Mm-hmm. of its mm-hmm. degree of self-reconciliation and harmony. So um, this is how I look at food. I mean, if we look at the food in the United States, the American food tells the history of a nation, right? Mm-hmm. If you look to the Southern cuisine in the United States, it tells you the, the history of the South. Yeah. So this is how I perceive food. Mm-hmm. Um. Okay, so tell me about the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. Is that, again, is that a prestigious job that's difficult to, it seems like very few people become diplomats, let's put it that way. You know, the Foreign Service, I think it's um, uh, it's the same everywhere. There is uh, always this test, you apply, and if you pass, you get the job. Mm. And usually the exams are sort of challenging because the number of applicants is usually. So there are several tests Mm. for IQ, for IT uh, skills, uh, communication skills, foreign languages, um, and then an interview at the end um, Mm. that examines the interpersonal skills of the applicant. Mm. So I consider it an honor yes, uh, and a big privilege that uh, I was able to pass all the tests and to have this honor. Mm-hmm. What led you to take that? Like what made you feel like this is, you know, what you wanted to do? 
It was an honor to get the job. Was the thought of leaving home scary, intimidating, exciting, exhilarating? What, how did that feel to you? I think the way I was brought up among many foreign cultures in Alexandria mm. uh, made me somehow fearless and very mm-hmm. curious. So I was so curious to explore and to travel the world. Mm-hmm. So I remember my first training was at the United Nations in New York. Mm-hmm. So at the age of 23, I had a speech to read in one of the commissions. Uh, and it was uh, uh, one of the unforgettable moments in my life. Mm. Did you write the speech? No, I did not write it. You didn't write it. Okay. Mm. Did you ever, I guess I've never really thought about as a diplomat for any country. I mean, is that for any diplomat, is that sometimes where you have to go in and negotiate or take a stance that maybe personally you don't uphold? No, you know, as a diplomat in any country or for any country, um, she or he has to comply with the government's, uh, the government's main policy. Mm. Mm-hmm. Uh, accepting or to be uh, a diplomat means that you should keep your personal views to yourself. Mm-hmm. Yes. Hmm. I might not be a good diplomat. <laughs> it's, hmm. it's, yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a personal decision. And mm-hmm. people who feel that the government... Um, is taking uh, certain stands that are very different from one's views or beliefs, they Mm -hmm. do resign. Right. And usually here in the States, diplomats change with different administrations. So you kind of know what you're getting into when you accept a position because you, you know, you know, the stance of that administration in general. Yes. Mm. So you were a diplomat for how many years before 2008? Nearly 10 years. Okay. And then tell me about meeting your husband in 2008. Give me a few more details about this love story. (laughs) So we met in a conference and he was interested to meet, uh, you know, a woman who is a diplomat because this is a a pretty tough job on women in general. And uh, this is how the conversation all started. Mm-hmm. And I felt that we have many common values. And he was serving in Algiers back then. Uh, so he was able to visit me at a reasonable frequency. And then in six months, we decided to get married. And at this point, I resigned from my foreign service job. First of all, if we can back up for a second, did you personally find that it was more difficult to be a diplomat because you are a woman? Or was he just kind of surprised in general because he didn't see as many? Um, back then, the number was not large. The number of mm. uh, female diplomats was not large. Mm. And also he saw that, you know, I had a Christian uh, uh, name. So it's not usual for minorities to be interested uh, in the foreign service. Usually they uh, choose business over uh, government oh. jobs. So I think this, this was another element that I he, see another element that he found interesting. Okay. So did you, did you decide to quit because of lifestyle choices that you guys wanted to make as a family or because it was not, 
it was not an option, le- you know, legally or or according to the diplomatic code or for there to be two diplomats in the family? So legally, legally, it was not an option. Um, okay. An Egyptian diplomat is not allowed to marry a foreigner. Okay. Uh, so I was very transparent and I resigned even before our engagement party. Wow. Yes. Was that a hard decision to make? Uh, it's a good question. Um, I felt that I had a very uh, fulfilling career for 10 years. Mm. And I was full aware of how tough this job could be on mm. a woman uh, who would like to have a family mm-hmm. and raise kids. Mm. Um, and, you know, my my husband, uh, as I said, as I mentioned earlier, we have a lot of uh, uh, common values. Mm. And I felt this is the right decision to make. And the thing mm. is, I resigned from the Foreign Service, but I did not resign from the uh, diplomatic corps because my husband is a diplomat. So uh, moving and serving overseas hasn't changed much. It's just the, the capacity. Now I move mm. in the capacity of a diplomat spouse, not mm. as a diplomat. Mm. But being the spouse of a diplomat, let's put it this way. I'm guessing being the spouse of a diplomat often requires diplomacy on your part as well. Definitely. Yes. Got it. Yeah, definitely. I see. The role of a, the diplomat spouse, it's not necessarily, or it should not be getting involved in politics. Right. But it's more the art of forging bonds yeah. with locals mm-hmm. and uh, presenting one's culture in the best possible way. Mm. Mm. Through entertaining, through mm-hmm. social activities, through volunteering, through adopting a positive role in times of crisis, mm. this is how um, a diplomat spouse should basically execute her role. It's a very high calling. We try to be to live up to our country's expectations from us overseas. Wow. So we try to go by the rules. Uh, we try to be the good examples. Uh, we uh, we work very hard to be gracious hosts when we entertain. Mm. And this is the least we can do, honestly. Mm. Well, thank you. <laughs> no, it's, it's, it's thank true. you for representing us better than we represent ourselves often. <laughs> it's, it's such a great country. So I took it. I take it when you got married, you also took on an American citizenship. I was naturalized, exactly. Okay. And how did your parents feel about this, all, all of these decisions? Um, I was uh, brought up by liberal parents, mm-hmm. uh, uh, and they respected all the choices I made. You know, I lost my father uh, five weeks ago. Yeah. And uh, this is one of the things I wrote about him, that he always uh, respected my choices. Yeah. Such an incredible gift. Yes, definitely. So I imagine this diplomacy that you're talking about, you know, this role of forging bonds, this does involve food heavily. A lot of food. A <laughs> lot of food, yes. So what does that look like? What's First of all, you know, I was not raised in the U.S., so I had to study the American cuisine. 
Mm. And uh, I felt that the American cuisine is uh, underrated. Really? And stereotyped as hamburgers and hot dogs and that's it. Mm. And that's not true. I discovered the richness of the American cuisine, especially mm. in the South. Mm. Because it has a Spanish, African, and French influences. Mm -hmm. uh, so when I host um, uh, foreign contacts and friends, I make sure that I give them a taste of that cultural mosaic. That's amazing. So uh, an exemplary menu would be like, you know, starting with some Middle Eastern mezan. This is my background. Mm. And then the first course would be a tomato soup uh, with basil just mm. to show the Italian influence on some parts of uh, the U.S. Mm. The second course would be a cornucopia salad, which is always a big hit, a mm. big hit. So what would uh, you put in a cornucopia salad? I would put dry fruits, uh, cranberry, of course, blue cheese, celery, mm. uh, uh, um, green apples, uh, mm. romaine lettuce, Mm -hmm. And then the sweet and sour, um, you know, vinegar and sugar, salt and pepper mm -hmm. and oil mm -hmm. for the mm -hmm. dressing. Mm. And it, it, it's always very successful. And mm. then the main course would be something like a pot roast over cheesy uh, grits. Wow. And I make sure that the dessert features one of the very popular pies in the U.S. with homemade ice cream. Like an apple pie or a pumpkin pie or something like that. Exactly. Exactly. Wow. I really enjoy. You can't imagine. This is my favorite part about this life. Like using food to forge a, a bonds with people. Mm. What do you find that the food, what do you find that it does? How does it, how does it help? You know, food, food is, is associated with comfort, mm. warmth, and family. And mm -hmm. when you invite somebody to your home to share your food heritage, it means a lot. Yeah. And when you pour your heart in crafting a menu that, as I said, represent the cultural mosaic of your country, guests always deeply appreciate it. Yeah. I served in Paris um, almost eight years ago. Mm -hmm. And I still have friends that, you know, we're still in touch. And one of the most flattering uh, uh, lines, oh, I can't forget this apple, American apple pie that I, I ate at your house eight mm -hmm. years ago. This is when you realize the power of food. Yeah. The smitten power of food. Yeah. Yeah. How many things do we really remember from eight years ago? But yet, yeah, that taste of a, of a pie can be on your tongue. Exactly. That and is such a good it's point. It's a pie made with love. Mm -hmm. It's not about getting a frozen pie. It's a pie made with love. Mm -hmm. And sharing the story behind the pie. Hmm. So, yeah, I want to talk about that. I'm so fascinated to hear. If you asked me what American cuisine was, I wouldn't know where or how to start describing it. So how did you start to decide what America, how did you do this research and what stories do you tell with these foods? 
you know, I, I lived in D.C. And, mm-hmm. uh, and, and basically Virginia, but um, mm-hmm. uh, in Alexandria. And I had a wonderful public library, uh, 10 minutes walk from my house. Yeah. Yeah. And that was, you know, I used to go there and read for hours. Okay. And borrow books and read yeah. and read and read. And so this is how I learned about the influences. Mm. Mm. So I educated myself. Mm. And I felt, I felt, of course, it was uh, a passion of mine to dig into the history of food. But I also felt that this is my duty to learn about the country that I'm representing. Incredible. Thank you. Mm. I'm really moved. I, I truly am moved, honestly, by, you know, I think that, yeah, I really am moved. I really want to say from my heart, thank you very much for what you do, because that is a real act of service and love. And I think we always think of the military and what they're out there doing for us. And I, I'm ashamed to say this, but I have never given a thought to what my diplomats are out there doing for us. And the you know, that they're out there as families taking on, you know, the burdens of a family having to move around and then making these elaborate meals and then to have to live your life. It's, it's, you say it's an honor and I'm so thankful you feel that way, but to live your life, you know, essentially on show, that's a burden. Um, I always describe the foreign service life uh, or the foreign service, not uh, as a job, as a lifestyle. Yeah. You have to embrace it and you have to love it, not only like it. Mm. Otherwise, you can't do it. You have to enjoy your life overseas. You have to immerse yourself completely in the local culture. Isolation is not an option for good diplomats. Mm-hmm. You need to go out of your way and extend your hand to the other. You have to mm-hmm. remove all barriers and make yourself very present. Mm-hmm. This is how people could know about our rich culture. And this is how we can we define the debunk all the myth and the ch- or challenge all the stereotypes. Mm-hmm. By being present and by being present in a positive way. Mm. Wow. Well, thank you very much. Really, I, I really mean that. Like, as an American, thank you very much for what you do. Honestly, it's me who is very thankful uh, for mm. the American people to put their trust in us. Mm. So I never take for granted that the United States has confided in me to represent it, although I was not raised in the U.S. This Could- is a big privilege and honor and a mission. Well, and it's the best of the American ideal. And it's, I think this is the American dream. Yeah. And for, uh, by the way, my husband is first generation American because his parents are Egyptian. Okay. So my husband moved to the U.S. at the age of 14. Wow. And believe it or not, he became an American diplomat. So we, this is our American dream. We embrace it. We live it uh, every day. Yeah. When I host an, uh, an event for the embassy, not for the foreigners, like mm. diplomats and military people, to mm-hmm. my house, mm. oh my God, it's like the United Nations. Every skin color is represented. Yeah. 
Well, so I want to, I want to dig into this a little bit, um, you know, kind of what it meant to become American as an Egyptian. And I was fascinated by what you said about this pecan date molasses bar recipe. Um, I'm just going to just read it. You said, I created this sweet recipe of pecan date molasses a couple of years ago. This is the part to declare a state of harmony and self-reconciliation that I reached as an immigrant and citizen of the world. So I, I'm really curious about this. You know, what parts of you were out of harmony? What parts of you needed to be reconciled? And what did it look like to become an American when you are, of course, always and forever also an Egyptian? You know, and then how did this recipe, tell me about the process of this recipe. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, so this recipe, I created this recipe uh, probably two years ago. It was in one of uh, overseas assignments and we were hosting uh, a big cocktail party for the entire embassy. Mm. And uh, my idea for that uh, um, uh, cocktail menu is to create um, something really diverse that represents everyone in the United States. Mm. So it was mostly finger food. Mm-hmm. So, you know, pecan pie, it's a holiday pie. Mm-hmm. It's an American holiday pie. Mm-hmm. And it had to be present some way or another. So basically, I was putting the ideas together. I said, okay, I'll make some hummus with um, pita chips, and then I'll make some Asian finger food, uh, you know, sweet and sour um, uh, chicken. And then what about the pecan pie? Mm. And I wanted to create something different. So I said, okay, I want to make a crust that is a French crust, because I learned how to make a good pie in Paris. Mm. And I flavored it with them uh, with some favorite spices. And then I moved to the molasses part. Mm. And I thought, why should I use regular molasses? I can use date molasses instead, which Mm. is common and natural ingredient across the Middle East. Mm. And then I flavored the... um, I flavored the molasses with my grandma's favorite uh, spices, cloves and mm. cinnamon and ginger. Mm. And, you know, pecans is not something that you find in the Middle East. Usually they use walnuts. Right. So pecans, mm-hmm. it's a synonym of, it's an, it's an American staple, yeah. pantry staple. So I put pecans on top and then instead of uh, baking it in the shape of a pie, I made it bites to match the theme of the cocktail food. Uh, So this is how, and then when, while I was creating the recipe and I tested the recipe a couple of times before I shared it with my guests, Mm. I felt, oh, wow, I feel that I reached um, a great state of harmony Mm. because before, you know, I never had a lack of harmony because as I mentioned uh, early in our conversation, I was brought up in a cosmopolitan city. Yeah. And that made my life very easy in the U.S. Mm. I never feared the other. On the opposite, I always, always take the initiative. Mm-hmm. I knock on my neighbor's door. I remember when I moved to a new house in um, um, Alexandria, Virginia, my first night, and I was seven months pregnant, I just knocked on all the neighbors, and we hosted a housewarming party for 70 people, friends, contacts, and neighbors. Amazing. So um, 
I, I never had this complex. I never tried to isolate myself. Mm-hmm. Uh, on the contrary, I, I always try to immerse myself in new cultures. Mm-hmm. So I never lacked harmony, but harmony is like a child. Mm. There are stages. Mm. It's born and then it matures over the years. Mm. So I think two years when I created that recipe, I found that I'm in a full state of harmony. Because usually you either bake something Middle Eastern or you bake something American, you know. Mm. But I think the magic when I when I succeeded to combine both. Yeah. Like Europe, Middle East and the US in one bite. Mm. And from that point onward, I think all my recipes reflect that state of harmony. Mm. You, you can't tell where the Egyptian influence ends and when the American influence starts. I hope I answered your question. You did. You did. I think it's the most meaningful recipe I'll ever photograph. <laughs> and you, yes, and you felt that personally as well. You felt that even, even now in yourself and Nermeen, you feel like you can't tell where the Egyptian stops and where the American starts. You feel, you don't feel that they're conflicted. Exactly. This is very mm-hmm. true. And this, mm-hmm. how my uh, recipes, mm-hmm. posts and write up reflect that. Mm-hmm. And because your husband is also Egyptian American, you can, it's, it's, I'm, I'm guessing it's fairly seamless passing both on to your children. My husband is a foodie and, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, not only we served in Paris, but he served when he was single in Rome. Okay. <laughs> so his taste buds, yeah, he's, he's, a, uh, he's a picky eater. And uh, he, he's, he loves to explore new cuisines. Okay. Uh, he's fearless. Honestly, he's a fearless uh, foodie. Mm. Um, so uh, I think we passed it to our kids and they do enjoy it. But as uh, you know, but my kids cannot differentiate. For them, it's good food. Mm-hmm. They cannot tell if, if whether uh, uh, it's Middle Eastern or American or European. For yeah. them, it's good food. It's the world. It's the world's cuisine. Yeah, yeah. Well, and that is my other question. I mean, is how? I mean, it's one thing. You know, you talked about going to this public library in Alexandria, and learning about American cuisine and its roots and heritage and where it came from. But how about actually learning to cook? Where did that happen? Okay. You know, I learned some basics in my grandma's kitchen. She was a fascinating cook. I'm sure this uh, uh, story is very common among many cultures. The grandma, the matriarch or the matriarch's kitchen. My mother was more of a westernized cook. She Mm -hmm. liked to uh, try uh, westernized recipes. Mm. But, I, you know, growing up, I didn't do a lot of cooking. Mm-hmm. I, I started to cook when uh, I became a uh, single diplomat living overseas because mm-hmm. I had to host. Mm-hmm. And this is when I was checking recipes online, testing them, refining them and so on. But mm-hmm. the big leap in my cooking style and cooking techniques happened when I moved to Paris with my husband eight years ago. Okay. That was a turning point. You know, French cuisine could be very intimidating. Mm -hmm. 
Yes, so, no kidding. <laughs> um, it's it's so intimidating. But something happened. I think it was uh, planned in heaven. Uh, <laughs> one day we decided to get rid of some uh, uh, coffee table books that we had because you know we're living in an apartment, not in house in Paris. Mm -hmm. So we had a dear friend of us who was running a uh, secondhand English books in Paris. So we decided to offer him these books. And he insisted on giving me something in return. So he offered me a book about French cuisine in English written by two American ladies mm -hmm. who lived in Paris. All mm -hmm. the recipes were amazingly simplified. And this is how I started every single recipe in this book. By the time I finished the book, I became a fearless cook. That's incredible. And surrounded by good ingredients everywhere in Paris, it was not hard to make the most decadent dishes. Okay. Interesting. You mm. cannot go wrong with a French recipe because even the type of flour, you know, they have so many types of flour mm. for crafts, for cakes, for brioche, for bread. So you can't go wrong. So this is something I learned from the French culture, being so precise and uh, accurate in writing and describing ingredients. Mm. That helped me a lot with my blog. Okay. Yeah. How often do you have these events? And then how do you set aside time and your schedule to make these elaborate meals on a pretty regular basis? You know, one thing I learned about entertaining is being ridiculously organized. Mm. You can't leave anything random. Mm -hmm. You need to write down your menu. You need to buy your uh, most of your ingredients, if not all, in advance. Mm -hmm. uh, you need to just do the math when it comes to the heating time and serving mm -hmm. time. Mm -hmm. Here in Singapore, I have help, but it was mm -hmm. more challenging in other places where I had no help. And in the French culture, uh, hosting is a big deal. Okay. Uh, so you don't you don't want to make mistakes in Paris because your guests will let you know about it. Mm. So uh, I had a, a one child back then in Paris, and uh, I think I learned how to be an organized host mm -hmm. or hostess back then. Okay. It just it's it's all about good planning when it comes mm -hmm. to entertaining. Mm. No, and of course being sensitive to your to the guest dietary restrictions. So right. uh, I do this two weeks in advance. I ask about the dietary restrictions. And how often would you do you host these events? Uh, well, now none. <laughs> well, yes. <laughs> yeah. Has that been hard for you or have you enjoyed the break? Uh, I miss it. Mm -hmm. I honestly miss it. I miss it so much. Mm -hmm. I miss those conversation cultural conversations around good food. Mm -hmm. It's so um, nurturing. You know, having forging bonds with new friends is priceless. Mm. Talking about food and culture and history combined together in one dinner is precious, a very precious memory. Mm. Uh, before COVID-19, uh, we used to um, entertain frequently, like at least once a week. Okay. Yeah. I'm curious about, we talked about food in your grandmother's 
kitchen and food as diplomacy. And I'm curious about food relating to religious observations, because when you posted, I I hope it's not painful for me to bring it up, but when you posted that beautiful image of you and your dad on your wedding day, and you talked about your father, you talked about him calling his Muslim friends to wish them a happy Ramadan. And then later when I was reading your blog, I noticed that you talked about um, that you observe Lent. And I guess how do those two, they're both connected with food in your Egyptian culture. How did that relate growing up for you? So I grew up as a Coptic Christian minority. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Christians are 10% of the total population. Mm-hmm. Uh, my father was Coptic Christian as well, uh, but he had the most wonderful ties with uh, his uh, Muslim compatriots. Mm-hmm. Um, our neighbors were Muslims, our best friends, our mentors, uh, my teachers, my professors, the best friendships I had in my life, uh, many of them uh, were Muslim friends. Mm. So um, there is no such a thing as like a natural conflict between the two faiths. That's that's untrue. Mm. You would not say one group is persecuted by the other. No. Mm-hmm. It could happen in some remote places to lack of knowledge or education or extreme mm-hmm. poverty. We had beautiful memories. I personally had and still have amazing memories. Uh, Egypt used to be a cosmopolitan society. And again, this what made my life in the U.S. all the more nurturing because I was used to diversity. Probably the picture is not all rosy and mistakes happen. But there's also a bright side of the picture that seldom people draw attention to. And we have to talk about both sides. Like your father calling his Muslim friends on the eve of Ramadan. I, I tell you, three nights before he died, he spent hours calling all his Muslim friends mm. to wish them a blessed Ramadan. Uh, And probably there is a post um, um, I added to my blog lately. It's about the tradition of my grandma. You know, uh, uh, of course, women cook a lot during Ramadan, and it's a festive meal after another festive meal. So, but after the first 10 days, usually housewives get tired. So my (laughs) mother-in-law had this beautiful tradition of cooking uh, a warm dish for them and sharing it with her neighbors and friends and Muslim friends wow. uh, out of compassion of uh, and, and understanding of how tired are they from cooking uh, all the wow. time. We have beautiful memories in the Middle East uh, with our Muslim uh, compatriots. Mm. I had a good experience. Yeah. I know some people did not have the same experience as mine. Yeah. But the thing is, when you are a minority in any society, any society, mm-hmm. if you isolate yourself and you are afraid, you will instigate um, uh, adversities. But when you go out of your way and you extend your hand, you remove the barriers. And my mm-hmm. parents, this is how I was brought up. Never mm-hmm. fear the other. Mm-hmm. On the opposite, being a minority could be an excellent stimulation and an incentive for many people to do a little extra. The thing is, I was exposed to some unfortunate incident in Egypt where I was some, uh, you know, humiliated because of my religion, some incidents. 
But when I look at the person, I never, I, I, I felt more compassionate than fearful. Mm. Because I know that this person was not educated or well-educated to understand my faith enough. Wow. If he were to understand my faith and his faith, he would know that we have the same common values. Mm. The differences mm. are way less than the common values. In, uh, by the way, among all faiths. This is all so interesting to me. Your perspective is so interesting to me. <laughs> mm. <laughs> Thank yeah. you. Yeah. So you said, I just want to talk about the bars for one more second. You said that the, you said you started with a French recipe for the basis, right? Exactly. Mm-hmm. And then you mentioned that you add this date molasses. So tell me about date molasses. What is it exactly? So date molasses is basically a concentrate of dates in mm-hmm. a liquid form. Mm-hmm. And it's uh, additives free. So oh, it's 100% okay. natural ingredient. And it's, it's, uh, it's a keeper as a pantry staple because you can use it in sweet and savory ingredients. So you can drizzle it over chicken to get okay. sweet and sour chicken. You can use it in pies. Uh, you can even use it as a syrup. You can add ice and some water and drink oh. it. And now, I what my store did have, and I've used it before, is pomegranate molasses. So is it similar to pomegranate molasses in the way that it's made, although obviously not in the flavor? I'm not sure how uh, they are both made. I think the pomegranate um, molasses, it just boiled for mm. a, a long duration. Okay. Until it becomes so dense. Yeah. I'm not sure about the date molasses, the steps, to be honest. Okay. But um, the pomegranate molasses um, has like an acidic taste, sort of, and mm. it's great for salads. The date molasses is on the sweet side. Okay. Okay. So if you want to create a sweet and sour recipe, or you want to have a golden um, um, skin mm-hmm. uh, of a chicken, you can drizzle some. It's like using it as a honey. Oh, okay. A substitute for honey in some recipes. Okay. And then, like you said, it's way healthier because it's just, it's dates. Yes. It's dates. It's, dates, it's additives free. Mm. Um, and, it, and it has a very um, uh, fruity, floral uh, uh, taste. Mm. This is genius. These bars are completely inspired. <laughs> I'm very excited about this. That's lovely. Okay. So um, I think I've covered all the questions. Is there anything else that you'd like to share with share with my listeners, your listeners that we haven't discussed? Um, I would like to say that food brings us together against all odds. So um, sometimes food is politicized, but we have to use it as a peaceful tool mm. uh, to promote our culture. Mm. And to advocate causes. Mm. Don't underestimate the power of food. It makes all barriers, all cultural, ethnic, and faith barriers to melt. It's really a powerful diplomatic weapon. So when you say against all odds, as a diplomat, you've probably seen people determined not to reconcile. And you've seen ways that food can bring them together. Once people share the same table... They have something in common. That's why all all negotiations always start with a lunch or a dinner. Mm-hmm. Sharing from the same plates, and this is something I, I do uh, uh, often now, especially when we have people from um, very different backgrounds. 
Mm-hmm. I like to make like family style. Interesting. Dishes. When we share from the same dish, That's oh my amazing. God. Well, thank you. Thank you for those words. Thank you for inspiring me. Thank you for your service. Really, thank you very much for your service. Thank you so much, Becky. It was really an honor and a pleasure to be your guest. You have an amazing um, uh, blog idea and wow. incredible photography talents. And the way you craft the stories, um, really, they do melt my heart. Well, thank you. It- well, it's, 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 it's an honor. It's an honor. I mean, to have just to have learned from you, it's really, it's nothing less than an honor. So I really want people to find you to follow your beautiful photography and your, um, I just love the way that you described your recipes. You can't tell where the Egypt stops and the American begins. And I just love that. So tell everybody where and how they can find you and connect with you. So my blog is has a French name. So she C H E Z N E R M I N E dot com. Mm. And my Instagram is at Shenermin one word, no space, no capital. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is where they can find me. Okay. Wonderful. And of course, I'll be sharing that in lots of ways. So, um, all right. Well, Nermeen, I really do. I want to thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Becky. Thank you so much, Nermeen. All of Nermeen's contact information is on the blog, along with the recipe for these pecan date molasses bars. Remember, an entire bonus episode will be released Friday, further showcasing Nermeen's incredible talents as a diplomat, student of culture and human nature, and as an empathetic friend. If you enjoyed this episode, will you please make sure to leave a review on iTunes or the player you do listen through? And just as importantly, would you share this with a friend or on social media? Both mean the world to me personally and will actually enable me to continue this podcast where I endeavor to share the stories and the words and the voices of the storytellers. Thank you and have a great week, my friends.